Crossway Church Sermon Audio. One of the fascinating realities that we live with every day, we can almost take it for granted, is the, both the differences and the similarities that children have with their parents. It's such a fascinating thing. And if you ever take a, a moment to kind of step back and think about it, how children are both similar and different from their parents. It's, it really is kind of remarkable. And, and, and we know this. We, we experience it. We see it all around us. We've experienced it ourselves personally. And yet we can almost take it for granted because it, it's every day and it just makes sense to us. Uh, on, the, on the unique side, on the differences side, the differences that children have with their parents and even with one another, it always fascinates me that that children in the same family are so unique. There's such differences. And I had this experience a few years ago where I, I thought to myself, now that just says it all. And so I, I, I had this experience of differences in my children. And so I had this box of tissues on the passenger seat for, it seemed like months. It had to be at least weeks. It was sitting there, and I would use it occasionally, but not that often, and it would sit there. And I had experiences with each of my children getting into the car. I'm in the front seat, waiting for them to get in the car. They get in the car in the front seat, and I, and I began to notice that different ones did different things with this obstacle, this box of tissues. One of my daughters would get in the car and simultaneously pick the tissues up and put them on her lap and hold them. Now, that's interesting. Another of my daughters would open the door and stand there and say, Dad, could you move that for me, please? Because I have nothing else to do. Another one of my daughters would just slap it onto the floor and sit down. Another one of my daughters would slide in next to it and leave the tissues there. And another one of my daughters all five of them here, would simply sit down right on top of the tissues, <laughs> destroying the box. By the end of this thing's lifespan, it was not even a box anymore. It was like tissues surrounded by pieces of cardboard. And, but it still had some form, amazingly. And it was remarkable how different they all are and how that spelled out a lot of their personalities. And, and I loved every one of those interactions because it was so unique. But Children also share similar qualities with their parents, similar characteristics, sometimes in looks. Sometimes you, you see a child, you say, oh my goodness, that's straight from the mother or straight from the father. And, you know, it's generally good form when you see a daughter to say, oh, you're as, as pretty as your mother. And don't say as your father, right, because that could be a problem. Uh, sometimes people look at, at Felicity or look at my children and think that Felicity is the only one that, that came from me because she has a similar skin tone. Uh, but sometimes you see it in the speech of children or in the behavior of children or in the gifting of children or their inclinations and desires, sometimes in their attitudes. And what's really fascinating that is, is this. If you know the family you'll likely say something like, oh, I can see the similarities between child and parent. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You would know it. You'd make that connection. But when we recognize that there are similarities between children and parents, we realize as we observe this through life, this is kind of a principle that we can learn from. And it's this. If you've seen the children and never met the parents... But if you've seen the children, if you've experienced the children, then you've learned something about that child's parents, haven't you? You've learned something about their parents. It's a, it's a principle because of the similarities between children and parents. And now it would be foolish, it would be foolish to stretch that too far, to make that too absolute, because when it comes to people, we are very different. And, and I, I, we have to be careful there. We don't want to jump to conclusions, right? But there is something to that, isn't there? It's, it's common enough, it's consistent enough that there's something to that. And that's why wise children, when people experience wise children, it automatically brings honor to their parents. And when people experience foolish children, that, that 
does the opposite to their parents. That's why the Proverbs encourage us to be wise children, to honor our fathers and mothers. Now take this idea and apply it to the Son of God. When the Son of God comes to earth, we are meant to see the similarity between Him and the Father, right? So, uh, John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is saying there, and he says it more fully in other places, there, there's actually, it's a much stronger link between him and the Father and us and our children or us and our parents. It's even stronger. When you see Jesus, when you know Jesus, when you experience Jesus, when you hear from Jesus, you have related to in an identical way with the Father. And so, when Jesus, when Jesus shows evidence of being the Son, that's to, it, 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 when He shows evidence of knowing the Father or being the child of the Father, that's to give evidence that He is He's God. He's the Son of God. He is God. Now today we begin a series in the Gospel of Mark. And it's satisfying to know we're going to be in this book for some months. And, and so let's kick it right off with reading the first eight verses of the book or the Gospel according to Mark. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Mark is the second book in the New Testament, the second Gospel. And just go to the first chapter and we'll read the first eight verses. <clears throat> The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark is the earliest gospel, the first one written among the four. It is likely that Mark received his source material from the apostle Peter. He's sitting down with Peter. He's saying, okay, then what happened? What happened next? Well, slow down. Let me write this down. Wait a minute. What was that detail? Let me get that again. Then what did Jesus say? And he's writing it down. He may have used other sources, but there seems to be good evidence that it was Peter and that Mark was used by others in writing their gospels, Matthew and Luke, John. At least to some degree, but not completely. The Gospels apparently began to be written down as the first generations of, of witnesses began to die off. It would have been hard to make things up about Jesus while that first generation was still around, wouldn't it? In 1 Corinthians, we're told that over 500 people saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. This was not a small thing. It was not an unknown thing. If you traveled in those Jewish circles, you would have heard the stories circulating. And you could have gone to these people that said they saw Jesus alive. And you could have asked them, are you sure it was Jesus? Did you really see him? When did you see him? Where did you see him? And it would have been hard to make things up about him at the time. But as that generation began to pass away, there was a need to, to make Jesus known and to keep others from turning him into whatever they wanted him to be. Turning him to say whatever they want him to say, which, by the way, happens a lot today. And that's why we have to be scholars in the Scripture. We have to press into God's Word to know what they wrote about Him. Because the Gospels were started, they started to write about Jesus about 30 years after the resurrection. 
about the time that first generation began to pass away. And Mark was one of the first. If it was the, probably the first one that was written down. And that's why they wrote the life story of Jesus down. That's what a gospel is. It's an account of Jesus' life. Not just the events of his life, certainly the events, the big events, but the substantive elements, the meaning of his life, the why he was there. And certainly the what that he did. Let me point out one difference between Mark's gospel and the other three. Mark's gospel is the shortest with the quickest tempo as it goes. And as the shortest, it may, with that quickest tempo, it may have actually the hardest punch. And here's what I mean. Think of this. Matthew starts with a genealogy. If you know the gospel of Matthew, starts with a genealogy. Who, who all Jesus's forefathers were. And if you think of Luke, it begins with a prologue about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We get a lot of details from Luke. And then John begins, even further back, John begins before the creation of the world. Remember how John begins? In the beginning was the Word, echoing Genesis. But instead of uh, in the beginning, uh, it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But Mark minces few words. It gets right to his subject. He wants to give you Jesus. He wants to introduce you to Jesus. The others do as well, but he does it in a particular and direct manner. He gives you the person of Jesus. Not a lot of teaching about Jesus in Mark. There's not even a lot of teaching by Jesus in Mark. There's certainly teaching by Jesus. There's certainly teaching about Jesus, but not a ton. Mark just gives you Jesus. Says, here he is, and presents him, and says, follow him. And this is something that we want to have its effect on us. This unique gospel, the shortest one, we want it to have its effect on us. What does it mean to us that Jesus, the person, is God? You see, he's not simply a great teacher. He's not just a stellar moral example, nor is he someone to be trifled with, or or shall I say it this way, as such, since he's not just a good teacher, since he's not just a good example, since he's not just a a buddy or a friend. He is not someone to be trifled with, not in our thinking, not in our attitudes, not in our perspective, not in our approach to him. Nor is he someone to, to put to the side in our settled Christian lives. Here's my whole life. I live my life. Here's my routine. Oh, and by the way, I'm a Christian too. That's not the way we relate to this Man, that is God. Jesus is far more than that. Far more. More than we can imagine. More than we have encountered in any other way in life. So we're going to dive into three points to explore the idea of what it means to us that Jesus is God. And then we're going to look to summarize it at the end, okay? So first and simply, I present you Jesus. Here is the Son. Here is the Son, right off the bat, as I said. Mark tells us who Jesus is, right? Look at your Bibles, look at that first sentence, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now for us, Christ and Jesus may seem synonymous. They, they just strike us that way, they land on us that way, because all our lives we've heard about Jesus Christ. In fact, many times people think that Christ is his last name. And that's not quite the way it is. And I think you probably know better already. Jesus was the man's name. And Christ is a title that comes out of the Old Testament. Takes on a Greek form here and comes out as Christ. It's a title that means anointed one or anointed king. So Jesus of Nazareth. Mark is saying, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is also the anointed king of God. That's what he's telling us about Jesus, right off the bat. But the next statement follows it right up to make it even more clear. The Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you might even be thinking, if you know your Bible, you might be thinking that's not entirely precise. Because Son of God can mean people. 
It can mean humans. It can even mean angels. Doesn't it mean that at some points in Scripture? Yes, it does. And, and in fact, everyone who believes in Christ, who trusts in Him, are called sons of God. We're made sons of God. We're adopted. And therefore, we're in Christ. And when God the Father looks at His Son, he, or looks at us, He sees His Son. He sees God the Son. And so in that sense, all that trust Jesus are sons of God. So it's true. But when you take Christ, that anointed king, and you take son of God in the context of that, and then the rest of the context together, it becomes very clear that we're not getting an extrapolation of son of God here. We're not getting a metaphorical term. We're getting an actual, literal, full-bodied expression. Jesus is directly the Son of God. He is, in fact, the full, complete, the one, the only, capital T, capital S, Son of God, the Son of God. And and in the context, as I've been saying, you see the passage here, verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what does it say, that voice? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 40, which is another amazing passage. And when Mark takes that quote from Isaiah 40 and puts it here, and he's applying it to Jesus, that is, in fact, an absolute shocker. Now, when you and I read this in our morning devotions, we might not be shocked. We might not fall off the couch. But that's how it would have appeared to the Jewish people reading this in the first century. This is a bombshell. It is a jaw-dropper. Isaiah is prophesying in Isaiah 40. He's saying, someday in the future, the Lord himself will come back to Jerusalem. Going to march back to Jerusalem. That's a big deal because in Isaiah's time and the times after, it was very clear that God had left the temple, left the people of Israel, left Jerusalem. Elvis has left the building. That's how it was. And so when he prophesies that the Lord's going to come back, that's a big deal. And now Mark is taking that passage and he's saying, this applies to Jesus. He's the Lord. He's come back to Jerusalem. He's going to show the nations his glory. And before he does return, here's a prophecy. A messenger messenger is going to come ahead of him and is going to proclaim that the Lord is coming. And he's going to tell them to prepare the way. So Mark is saying that the supplies to Jesus, Jesus is the Lord that will return to Jerusalem. And he's also saying that John the Baptist is that messenger that proclaims that Jesus is coming and prepares the way. In fact, look at, look at verse 4, 3 and 4 really. Look at your Bible there. Isn't this fascinating? He goes from verse 3. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He just gives the briefest description. And then what happens next without any mincing of words? What is the very next thing you read? Verse 4. This is part of that flow and tempo of Mark. John appeared. This is fast forward. This is for the people that like to listen to audio on two times the speed. So they can get through it quicker. Boom. You want to, someone's going to come prepare the way and his name is John because he appears. John appeared. And so he's applying this Old Testament passage from Isaiah to John and to Jesus. I also want you to note here that the word translated as Lord is Yahweh. The word translated as Lord here goes back to the root in Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal covenant name given by God to Moses and to his people that they could call him by. That's what they would call him. That's who they came to in the Holy of Holies. They came to Yahweh when the priest, the high priest, went in once a year. And to this day, this is so sacred to both the ancient Jews all the way up to this day, Orthodox Jews, do you know they will not write out the name Yahweh? They subtract the vowels from it because they deem it so holy. 
And yet this is who Mark identifies Jesus with. He's making it clear Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. He's the God of Israel. And that's why this is such a bombshell and a shocking claim that Mark would put it right here. When he says, you want to know who Jesus is? You want to know what this book is about? It's about Jesus. Here he is. He's, he's the anointed king. He's the son of God. He is Yahweh. Now that's a mouthful. This is such a powerful, ultimate, far-reaching claim for us. It affects everything. It is, it is truth to the extreme. If this is true, if this is reality, if God, if Yahweh, if the Son of God, if the anointed King has come to earth, it changes everything for us. Everything. Tim Keller points it out in one particular way I thought was really powerful and helpful. So I want to give you this longer quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller, he says, he says the fact that the Son of God is here is the end, think of this, it's the end of philosophy. Let me give you a little quick nutshell on the history of philosophy. All of philosophy has been a battle back and forth between which is more important, the real or the ideal, particulars or universals, the many or the one, rationalism or empiricism, postmodernism or modernism, Aristotle or Plato. Plato. Which is it, the ideal or the real. But in Jesus Christ, we're told that's all over. The end of philosophy. We don't have to worry about that anymore. The ideal has become the real. The metaphysical has become physical. The immortal has become mortal. The unapproachable is someone you can hug. The total invulnerable has become radically vulnerable. The impossible has become possible. Now, Someone here in this room may say, yeah, but it's hard for me to fully believe that it matters to my life. Maybe I do acknowledge, maybe I will go along with the teaching of the church all these years and say, okay, fine, Jesus is the Son of God, but how does that matter to my life? Well, you might be thinking that, that my obstacles to believing and then recognizing its importance to my life are so big. You know, every day is the same. I feel the futility of life or I'm facing this particular relational conflict or the finances are never there or there's so much suffering around me. Have you, have you seen the, the latest stats on suicide and how big an issue that's becoming in the United States as a cause of death? You see, as, as lies advance... And as darkness advances, people become more and more hopeless and desperate. They just give up. That's not reality. Not with Jesus Christ. And the witnesses to the resurrection, those 500, those apostles, Mark who, John Mark who writes this gospel... All of those witnesses to his resurrection, hear me now, they actually had more obstacles to believe than we do in our time. They were all, every one of them, were Jewish. And the idea that God would become human to them was essentially an impossibility in their mind. You see, both Muslims and Jews share this in common. They believe God is so transcendent that he would never condescend to join with, to become part of his own creation. And therefore the idea that God would become flesh, that God would become man, that God would love humanity and, and come and live among us and sacrifice himself, that is just impossible. They would never believe that. They, they scoff at the idea. But when the Son takes on flesh, and by the way, when you think about the concept of God, just, just sort of conceptually and logically, that, that, that's, that's not unreasonable, is it? That God would be so powerful that He would never condescend to become part of what He made. But when you recognize that God is love, and when you see that the Son of God became man, 
you begin to realize how deep this love goes, how relevant it is, how it's the only thing, the only thing that really matters in your entire life is that God became man. And so for those witnesses that had all these obstacles, they're, they're Jewish people, they, they, it goes against everything natural inside of them, the idea that God would become man. But when they recognize that, they, they can't deny it anymore, they see him alive, it changes everything. It changes everything for them. All that has to change. And so is true for you, dear friend. If you have not yet trusted Christ, look on Him. His reality means everything must change. And for those that have trusted Him and have started moving from centering on Him to centering on whatever else we think life has in store for us, remember, He is all in all. And the only reason that we have life for life is Him. Himself. So think of yourself, everyone, think of yourself as standing on the bank of the Jordan River. In the wilderness, you hear the words of John the Baptist that one is coming and you believe. But you also know if you respond to that inner impulse, I think this is true. If you take that step, if you go into that water and you meet John there and you let him baptize you, your whole world changes. Everything's different. The way you approach life has to change. The the things you put your effort into, the things you give yourself to, the things you desire in life, it all changes. And the people that know you, you know they're going to experience a different you. You know you're different now. And it's all changed. What will you do? You know now that Jesus holds the keys to putting away all the fear and futility of life. But if you go and repent of sin and trust the Son, you know that everything you once were has to change. What will you do? I think this applies to every believer here today. There are... Some of us and some things, probably all of us, with some things that have taken the place of our Savior. Mark says, here he is. Here is the Son. Speaking about John in the wilderness, that brings us to our second point. That we need to follow the Son into the wilderness. Follow the Son into the wilderness. The wilderness is where the Son often, most times, holds Class, And if you want to learn from the Son, if you want to sit under the King, if you want to meet the Anointed One, we may well have to go out into the wilderness to meet Him. That's where John went to preach, and Jesus will soon be going to the wilderness Himself in this story. God, hear me now, God often meets His people in the wilderness. It's not new. Remember when Jacob wrestled the angel? The place was named Bethel. He named it Bethel. He named it House of God. It became a city later. But when he wrestled the angel, it was a what? It was a wilderness. And where did Moses meet God in the burning bush, the bush that seemed to be on fire but was not consumed? It was the wilderness. And where did God take Israel, his son, when he took them out of Egypt and delivered them from Egypt? Where did he take them? He took them to Mount Sinai, a mountain in the wilderness, uninhabited. Why does God do this? Well, I think first of all we have to recognize that when you and I think of wilderness, or at least I do, but you probably as well, we still think of lush places. We still think of lots of growth. We think of moisture. We think of fertile grounds. In other words, we think of the forest when we think wilderness. And in a forest you could... You could survive. There's animal life there. There's plant life there. You could even get a clearing and plant some things, and where the sun would come through, it would grow. But that's not the wilderness that's being referred to here. That's not the wilderness John is in. The wilderness is a place 
where life does not thrive. It's a dry place. It's more desert than forest. And it's hard to survive there. It's a place of dryness. It's a place of thirst and dehydration. It's a place of thorns, not produce. The wilderness is a place that you cannot survive on your own. You need divine intervention to survive in the wilderness. You need God to deliver you, to rescue you. You need God to feed you. You need God to water you if you'll make it in the wilderness. You need that manna. You need that water from a rock. And here's why it matters that John's in the wilderness. Here's why it matters that the king will go into the wilderness. Here's why it matters that we go to class, to school in the wilderness. Because God is not supplementary to our lives. He's not a vitamin pill. What do you call a vitamin pill? You call it a supplement, right? Why do you call it a supplement? Because you can't live on it. It's supplemental. It's additional. It's an add-on. And I'm afraid that at times in our lives, I certainly have, and, and there may be some here today who are just adding God to their life, adding Jesus to their life. It doesn't work like that. He's not supplemental. He is life itself. And God likes to use the wilderness in our lives so that we recognize that He is not the side dish. He is the meal. If you don't have Him, you don't have life. Jesus wants to meet you in the wilderness and He'll take you there. And here's what happens in the wilderness. A wilderness experience is when your world gets turned upside down, when it all gets shaken, when the idols that we're living for get exposed for what they are. When we recognize that that we've said we're a Christian, we go to church, we seem to do most of the right things, but in fact we're living for something else. The greatest desires in our heart are some other desires that contend with a desire for Christ Jesus the Son. C.S. Lewis, I think, really sums this up well, and I wanted to share this quote with you. I've lost my... There we go. Most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they, can, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promises. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning ever really satisfy. I'm not speaking about what ordinarily would be called unsuccessful marriages or trips or so on. I'm talking about the very best possible ones. There's always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that always fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a great spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a pretty good job, but what we're really looking for has evaded us. And that's because what we're really looking for, what we really must have, the only true satisfaction that is really there is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we learn that all these other things, they can't save us, they can't satisfy us, they can't make us content. And when you're in that wilderness and you're crying out, they don't hear you, just like a wooden idol couldn't hear you, just like a stone idol, just like a metal idol. It can't hear you, it can't answer you, it doesn't care. And it has no power. God takes us into the wilderness. We meet the Son out there and He teaches us. We need Him. We need Him. We need Him. We need Him. We remember that God Himself is the giver of life. And for those that belong to Him, He's already right here with us. He's with us in the wilderness. He's there. And He will sustain us. He'll bring us out from the wilderness. And when we embrace that we need God's intervention, only then... Only then do we meet the Son and receive His teaching. There's another note here about 
following the Son into the wilderness. There's something powerful going on, something that we've done here this morning, and that's baptism. You see, we always need, we always need the Son to cleanse us. We always need His washing of us. So John's out there baptizing. And we know baptism if we've been around the church. We, we think, okay, yeah, that's good. That's good. Those people get baptized. That's great. But what we may miss is that this is a huge offensive deal. People are upset. This is massive. So when you stand on that bank of the Jordan, you, you, you feel the pull of truth. You feel the conviction inside you. You also recognize this is a titanic moment if I take the step. Well, why is that? Well... For Jews, they would do ritual washings, which had to do with the cleansing of, of the self from sin, that idea. They would wash themselves. But, but they would never be baptized. They would never be immersed. Because to be immersed represents a turning away from what you were. And the Jews saw themselves as automatically belonging to the covenant people because they had Moses and the prophets. And they were ethnically Jewish. And they were circumcised. So there, there you have it. I'm in. And so the, all they had to do was kind of keep up with it with ritual cleansing. So this is a huge deal for the Jews. It's also a big deal for the Gentiles. It, 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 for the Jews, let me just say, it represents a repudiation of their national identity and even their understanding of the covenant work of God. Huge deal. But even for the Gentiles, it's a big deal because the Gentiles would, would baptize. They would do things like that in different religions and rituals, but it was always self-baptism. They baptized themselves. In the ritual, whatever, whatever ritual it was, they would go down into the water themselves and come back up themselves. Do you know what John is saying here? John's saying everyone needs baptism. Everyone needs to be cleansed. Everyone needs to be changed. Everyone needs to turn from sin. Jew and Gentile, every single person. You know what else he's saying? He's saying, no, no, I have to do it for you. You cannot do it to yourself. Because many are seeking to self-save. This is in the heart of humanity. I'm not that bad. I don't need a God. I don't need a Savior. I may want a God supplementally, but I don't really need Him. And they self-save. My sins aren't that bad. They're not as bad as the next person. I certainly don't need someone to die for them. And they seek to, to baptize themselves in their own works, in their own acts of charity, in their own moral certitude, their, their own acts of social justice, their, their own attitudes, their positive vision for life. They seek to baptize themselves in these things and say, see, I'm good. But it doesn't work like that. And John is showing us, no, no, you can't. You can't do this for yourself. Come here, I will do it for you. I will baptize you. And you put yourself in the hands of another and they immerse you to demonstrate that you need a power over you, above you, working on you to put you down and to bring you back. You know what else John is saying? John is saying, I'm doing this right now for you. I'll do it for you right now because it's obvious every one of us has to turn from our sin. So I'll baptize you. And you repent before God. He said, but, but this is not the ultimate baptism. It's not the final baptism. There's another one that's coming. And you need this one even more. So I'll, I'll baptize you in water. But he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not just going to baptize you for the repentance of sin. He's going to immerse you in himself. In God himself. The Son of God. Jesus Christ is going to come. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and you will arise with a new life. Turning from sin, yes, but living to God forever. Totally, completely transformed, resurrected, reborn, regenerated. And so John's saying, I'm just a picture of that. 
I'm a foreshadowing of that. I'm pointing everyone forward to that. You know, when you see today's baptisms, you know, they're very connected to John's baptism. Because John was pointing people forward to Jesus who would fulfill and really baptize them. And what we're doing in the baptismal, uh, I was going to say tub, baptismal, I guess tub, whatever. What we're doing in this tub uh, is pointing back to what Jesus has done. What he's done in history on the cross and with his resurrection. And also what he's done to regenerate that person to give them new life. And they're baptized by uh, other men. And that points to someone else having to baptize them, right? Someone else saying, okay, the old is gone. The new has come. Come to a new life. You are new in Christ. Jesus is the baptizer. He immerses us in the Holy Spirit. And we come up alive in Him, belonging to Him, enjoying Him forever. Let me ask you, have you been cleansed by the Son? Are you trying to self-cleanse? Are you trying to sneak a little bit of your own religion, your own sort of made-up religion into your saving of yourself, into the, the identity that you have? Or have you been cleansed by the Son? Have you been baptized by Him? Finally, let me show you that we need to note the road that the Son takes. If I could have that next slide. We have to note the road that the Son takes. Have you ever gone for a walk in the woods and you came to a fork in the road and you couldn't remember the way? Maybe you'd been there before, but now you can't remember which way. Or have you ever tried to backtrack on a hike and on your way back you couldn't remember which way to go? And that's where it can help to, to mark the path that you want to go on. You could put a little landmark there or just make a mental picture and really settle it in your mind that that's the, that's the right path. I need to go there. And here, we are to make a mark. We're to note the road that our Lord takes. We're to see it and consider it and take note of it. And we're to contemplate the road He takes. We're not to forget it. And then we're to get on that road ourselves. So what is this road? Where is Jesus, the Son of God, going? Well, the, the prophecy says he's going to Jerusalem, right? It says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And as Mark applies this to Jesus, we know that he's going back to Jerusalem. The Lord is going back to Jerusalem. That's the prophecy. And he's a king, and he's Lord. We see that here in the very first line in Mark. He's Christ, he's anointed king, and, and, it, and he's the son of God. And then you have here, prepare the way of the Lord, and he's applying this to Jesus. Well, again, time may make this hard for us to comprehend and to imagine. See, usually an ancient road would, would simply come into being by people using the shortest path they could find. And so if uh, they, would, they would begin to carve out a path, you know, they walk it enough times, okay, I need to get down to the water this way, I need to go uh, to market this way, and, and they would, would just walk it and it would wear itself down a little bit, and then maybe it would turn into a road. And, and when you do that kind of thing, you, you take the straightest road and the easiest road, right? So if there's a big hill, you go around it. If there are rocks that are insurmountable, you go around them. You, you don't bother to carve the road there. And so these natural roads would happen, or, or, or when they would actually go to make a local road or something like that, they say, well, let's go around that big mountain, or let's go around that hill, uh, let's leave those rocks alone. And that's the way they would do it. But you see, when a king would come to town, it would be like having the Olympics come to your city. And, and it, I, I'm always amazed, and I'm sure you, it's, it's a spectacle, I'm sure you are too, it's almost a spectacle, you see these cities that get the Olympics, and they, they, what do they do? They immediately, and they find out however many years before, a decade or so before they're going to have the Olympics, what do they do? They start building the most enormous arenas, and they improve the roads, and they, they, they get their shops set up, they put billions of dollars into the infrastructure of the city to get ready for the, uh, for the, for the Olympics. Well, it's kind of like that with the king. Because massive amounts of resources would be put into road building. Because you can't have the king show up on this windy, twisty, narrow, not properly paved, uh, uh, rough, trippy road. 
That was the long way. Now, when the king comes to your town, especially a city like Jerusalem, they're going to put an incredible amount of manpower into road building. And what they're going to do is they're going to dig down into the hills. And they're going to make the path wide. And they're going to remove the boulders out of the way so that they can make a straight, wide, smooth, gentle sloped path, much like our driveway out here that is now paved. Isn't that nice, by the way? Did you notice that coming in? Don't worry, we'll have the lines up soon. They'll be painted on soon. But that's like a road for a king, what you see out there, except it goes to Jerusalem. And by the way, after the king would come through, then others could use it as well. But to make that road required a massive workforce. And that required, you know what that required? Thousands upon thousands of brutalized slaves to make that road for that king. There are a few things that may seem as ostentatious as a king having a road built for himself to a city. But here is something remarkable. It may seem like Jesus' road, this road that has to be prepared, is, is, it, it's all about oppression. All, all these folks are going to be uh, leaned on so heavily that we just go to work for the king, and it's all about his glory. But here is something remarkable. Mark's use of the word road or paths here, which other translations translate as road. You see that there where it says make his path straight or make the road straight? Where it says that, Mark's use of that, I believe, I'm almost certain that in every other case in the, of use in the book of Mark, refers to the road to the cross. When Mark uses that term, he's talking about the pathway, the straight, wide, smooth, easy path to the what? To the execution of the king. This king, this Lord, Yahweh, is not going to a throne. He doesn't need a straight path for the throne. He's going to the cross. King's cross. King's cross. When I think of that expression, I think of our sister church in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire, where Jacob Young pastors. We hope to get him back in. He planted that church and our... Uh, our team that goes to Boston helps him every year. And I hope to get him in again in a year, maybe a little bit less, and uh, have him preach to us again. That's what I think of when I think of King's cross, this king going straight as quickly as he can to a cross. What do you think of when you hear that term, King's cross? Tim Keller points out that if you're British, there's a neighborhood in London and a railroad station named King's cross. And if you're Australian, there's a neighborhood and a railroad station named King's Cross in Sydney rather than London. And if you're a Harry Potter fan, King's Cross is the railroad station that Harry gets the train to Hogwarts at. Not too many laughs on that one, all right. I get it. But what an amazing paradox. Think about this, King's Cross. Kings don't go to crosses, they go to thrones, they go to glory. They, they don't go to suffer, they go to be coronated. And crosses are the exact opposite. Crosses are a place of execution. Crosses are a place of humiliation. Crosses are a place of terrible pain and suffering. Crosses are a place of death. Crosses are a place where you don't even get the dignity to die alone. But you die in the full sight of the people who want you dead. And they get to savor the moments of your life ebbing away. This king has a road to a cross. So his glory is not that he goes to a throne, but to a cross. He's glorified that he goes to a cross. Why does he go to a cross? To die for us. Jesus goes, say it another way, into the ultimate wilderness where he thirsts and he suffers and is alone and left abandoned 
And he dies. He does that. And you know that what that means. It means this, that when we go into our wilderness, we're not alone. We don't go without nourishment. And we don't die. But we live. The son is not the king that oppresses slaves to make a road for him. He's a king who dies so that his people can be free and alive forever, far from oppression. It is liberty and life. This Son of God, this Jesus Christ, brings us salvation by grace because he takes the quickest road to the cross. Now, I want to give you a summary here. I want to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing a, a song in closing, but let me give you the, the summary. And, and I think it's summarized a little bit poorly. I don't love the wording here, but I think you'll get the gist, and hopefully it's short enough to make it concise and easy to remember. Since this is the Son, we should follow Him fully. Since this is the Son, we should follow Him fully. Here's the thing. If Jesus is not just a good guy, if he's not just a good moral example and not just a great teacher and, and, and not just a, a good philosopher, as so often, 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 more and more the world tries to reduce him to, to, they want to claim him as their own and yet they want to deny who he is. Don't let that happen in your heart. Don't let it happen in your heart. He hasn't given us that ability, not when you read who he is, not when you see him in Mark. If Jesus is not just that good guy, but the son of God, and if that son goes on the road of suffering to die for us, well, what should we do? Well, here's the thing, half-hearted responses aren't going to do, are they? Milk-toast Christian lives aren't going to do. Sort of being Christian doesn't really work. Not, not, in the, not in the face of this. Not in the face of the Son who dies for us. You see, upon seeing the true Jesus, upon hearing truth from Him, upon seeing His life, upon recognizing what He does and what that says about us, people either run away from Him to get as far away as they can, to not be reminded, to avoid the brutal truth that they need a Savior who has to die for them. Either they run away from Him or they seek to kill Him, to wipe Him out, to, to get that inconvenient truth out of the way. Or they do something else. They worship Him. They bow the knee. They bow the heart. And they bow it all the way. See, because of who he is and because of what he's done, Jesus has called us to a rather extreme response. Jesus is our life. Let all things pass away. But Jesus himself and Jesus alone is our life. So there you are, friends. You're back on the banks of the Jordan again. You feel the pull of truth. You see the reality of it. You know it's true. What will you do? What will it be? Will you give your all? Will you give your all for the Son of God and for full followership of the Son of God? Would you stand with us, please? For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.